Hello, I'm David Mosscrop. Welcome to Open to Debate. Artificial intelligence is shaping healthcare in Canada and around the world. The role of AI in delivering care will evolve and indeed grow. As a series of tools, it offers opportunities for patients and practitioners. Yet, as with any technology, it comes with risks. As with any tool, AI will only be as good as those who create and operate it. Given who we are and our track record, that ought to give us pause. Understanding, interrogating, and mobilizing new technologies requires care, diligence, and diversity. When it comes to equitable, accessible healthcare, we require heaps and heaps of such considerations. So in this episode, we ask, what does artificial intelligence mean for the future of equitable, accessible healthcare? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Dr. Reem Kazal, an expert on AI policy who holds a PhD in neuroscience from Carleton University. Okay, let's start by talking about what we're talking about here. Artificial intelligence, equity, accessibility, uh, and, and how they relate to health in this country. I want to start with uh, a basic question that's probably super basic to you, but not to everyone, which is, uh, what is artificial intelligence? Because it strikes me that it's the sort of thing that something, uh, you know, each person thinks they understand and have an, uh, have an idea of, but then you ask them and you're like, uh, they're like uh, Skynet, you know, they think of Terminator. Or, or they think of robots, you know, and yet it, it, AI pervades so much of what we do. What, what is AI? So AI, artificial intelligence, AI is a, a term, it's an umbrella term really used to describe like a suite of technologies that are intended to simulate and enhance cognitive, human cognitive capabilities. It's not a new term. It's not a new concept. Quite the contrary. It was kind of introduced back in the 1950s and it was part of the fringe society, right? So this is, and it maintained a cult-like following for a few years and then it kind of dissipated, much like a lot of science where there's ebbs and flows in terms of um, popularity and what gets funded. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not a new concept, but now with the emergence of sophisticated computing uh, infrastructures it, and the ease in obtaining um, and ingesting big data, like we are um, in a constant t- state of uh, developing and outputting data. And now we can actually pretty much uh, codify everything that we do in our daily lives. And then we also have uh, infrastructure that c- computing infrastructure that can actually maintain that vigor. And so it, it became now recently the development of like deep learning algorithms. And uh, this is pretty much gained a lot of popularity over the last 10 years, specifically over the last five. Um, And so with regards to how AI, and AI can also be, um, there's a lot of terms, there often is used mutually exclusively, but there's actually a lot of overlap. So you have terms like machine learning. This is a very common term that's often used, and it's basically uh, a technology or an algorithm that teaches computers how to learn without being explicitly programmed as such, right? But within them, there are things like supervised learning, there's unsupervised learning, there's semi-supervised learning, there's reinforcement. So there's a lot of different ways, and all of that is just fancy way of saying, how do you build the algorithm to input, ingest information, and then produce something of an output? 
right? Mm. Um, you also have things like in health, things like natural language processing. So basically, uh, systems that have the ability to analyze, understand, and generate human language. These are are actually quite popular, especially in terms of virtual assistants, um, virtual interviews. You also have things that are called neural networks. Um, these are uh, basically the attempt to mimic the network of neurons in the brain. Um, and so that the computer is able to learn things and make decisions in a human, and I put this in quotations, human-like <laughs> manner. Um, and, and again, you know, we can keep talking about all these different types of systems. They all have unique needs and capabilities as it relates to the type of information that they ingest. So for example, um, audio files or visual files like object recognition or your predictive mechanisms. So a bunch of data points that you create this, all these data points create a cat, for example. So the system will learn how to uh, identify or predict what is a cat. So that's kind of, sorry, I kind of just went off on all the No, days. please. No, no, it's great. It's, it's, I'm glad you did. I mean, it's so fascinating. I remember reading uh, about, you know, memory and, and the systems that we create. And I think it was Joseph Heath who was making a point in a book he wrote on, on the brain and politics that we have limited cognitive capacity. We're limited biological creatures. But one thing we're good at is projecting our consciousness and our out into the world and sort of fixing our limitations with with institutions and technologies that we build out inside the world that you know these are like you said you know suites of tools that we make to compensate for the fact that there's only so much that we can do as human beings right um, I say that by way of getting at the heart of this conversation which is healthcare but also specifically uh, equity and access and, uh, and accessibility so first, I want to I want to get into that in a sec. But first, I want to talk a little bit about what we mean by equity and what we mean by accessibility. Um, I'm curious how you conceive of, of the of the two concepts and, and perhaps how they relate together. I think with regards to equity um, and accessibility, uh, it means a lot of things to different communities, right? Mm -hmm. uh, having access to a primary caregiver, for example, and then having the primary caregiver take you seriously regardless of how you look is an intersection between accessibility and equity, correct? Um, and those are cultures that are embedded in systems that mm -hmm. we have here in Canada. We have huge swaths of communities like our Aboriginal communities, uh, refugee communities, uh, marginalized communities that do not have that intersect between equity and accessibility. And what has happened in healthcare is this has caused deaths, right? So the lack of equity has caused deaths, uh, especially in the Aboriginal communities. We've seen that over and over again, where they go to a ER, which is supposed to be a very safe space, uh, mm. where you have something that's broken and you'd like to be fixed but the culture um, of the hospital the culture of healthcare, uh, made an assessment of because it's never one individual right it's an individual that has been emboldened by a system right people don't they don't act out as individual beings we're not very brave as human beings we're not very courageous it takes a lot for us to to step out of line so to speak we're very much herd mentality so the culture of healthcare allowed multiple Aboriginal people to die within healthcare because they were associated with stereotypes, um, were not being listened to, um, and were not given 
primary health care. So, so there's to answer your question, I think that uh, those two terms, accessibility and equity, are not mutually exclusive. Quite the contrary, they must intersect for you to have a robust healthcare system. I mean, it's such a critical point, and you hear stories about this all the time. People who, who either in an emergency room or with a primary care physician are saying, here's the problem I think that I have. And the doctor sort of asserts authority and saying, no, no, you don't know what you're talking about. And I remember one person tweeting something like, you know, a doctor will say, don't confuse with my medical medical degree with your Google search. And then responding, well, don't, you know, confuse your 15 minutes of dealing the, with this in one class 10 years ago with my living with this condition my entire life. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and, and so. Uh, you know, the pushback then becomes, well, you know, patients uh, ought to have a right to self-advocacy and, and, and need to be listened to. But as you mentioned, the sort of, you know, racial, uh, uh, ethnic, religious, et cetera, et cetera, stereotypes and, and, and corporeal stereotypes, uh, you know, become a, a block to that. I mean, uh, you know, for instance, with with people, um, we're, we're working on an episode on fat phobia, which will come out mm-hmm. uh, hopefully before too, too long. And one of the points that keeps coming up is, you know, doctors will look at someone and sort of, you know, make a, a series of, of prejudicial judgments and then dismiss them after the fact, right? David, I don't want to go into my deep-seated hatred to the BMI. I don't want yeah. to get into that, but like... Well, we can if you... <laughs> we, can go, we can go anywhere you'd like. But that's the thing, right? It's, it's, it's fascinating that, um, you know, we think of the medical system, a lot of ways that we think about data, that it's Mm -hmm. unbiased, right? It is what it is. It's what we see. I'm not making a a discriminatory or prejudicial remark or assumption about you. It's just the way it is. This is is the uh, information that was provided. Uh, But we've seen over and over again, and I'm sure we'll talk about data uh, later on, but we've seen over and over again the way you ask a question, who asks the question, how the question is analyzed, how the question is implemented and produced into policy, into frameworks, into procedures, all that impacts uh, marginalized communities. And oftentimes it's because there's no diversity, inclusion and diversity within the ranks. Um, right. So oftentimes, you know, when t- people talk about diversity and inclusion, they're like, well, look, look at all these working level individuals. All our doctors are from different racial backgrounds. But then you look at what they needed to get there. So oftentimes you have to assimilate the cultures around you in order to get there, which is another conversation for another time. Um, But also you look at the board of directors, you look at the administrators, you look at the people in power and what do they look like? Mm -hmm. Are they representative of Canadians? I can tell you right now, I have not been in a sector and I've been on these streets for years, (laughs) David. Mm -hmm. I have not been in a sector where any board of directors or people in power are representative of the Canadian public, mm-hmm. full stop. There is not one, and healthcare is no different. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I that that point resonates. And even you know, it's funny is is you know, even if uh, in those moments where these boards and organizations start to, there's always a class gap. That seems yeah. to me to be the one. La- yeah. You know, we even I, I have a feeling that you know, years after, if we ever do figure out equitable board structures there will be a class gap. I think that one will be the one, but that's-, that's we, we saw, But we saw a class gap during COVID, right? Yes. We saw that, right? We saw it live. And I think what people are not ready for is talking about classism in Canada. Because, mm-hmm. you know, we, we don't have classism in Canada, but we've seen over and over again, the narrative, the gaslighting that occurs, 
I hate using that term in a corporate sense, but that really the lying really that occurs between individuals of an upper echelon of the community, where a lot of us who, uh, you know, have uh, that don't live paycheck to paycheck, that have a, a livable salary, we're inconvenienced by, mm-hmm. by quarantine, right? Whereas individuals that we termed as heroes, and we added this burden to them, have lost their lives, they've lost their livelihoods. Um, and what happens when you have um, these class issues, the individuals at the top and those who are, you know, are 1%, so to speak, are never really affected. The infighting occurs with the lower, our quote unquote, lower levels, right? Yeah. Where it's like, why are the gyms closed? I, like, why are the gym closed? Gyms are so important for health. 110%, who has access to gyms? Mm-hmm. It's not the same. Like, you're also impacted, but it's not the same. And I think that's the thing. It's like, you know, this false equivalency that occurs in our, our communities. Um, and I think COVID really highlighted the fact that we have a huge issue in Canada as it relates to class. Huge. And incidentally, you know, it's funny as I think you mentioned gyms and the sort of people who were inconvenienced by gyms being closed were the sort of people who could probably afford to have equipment at home too, right? I mean, and was... the thing is too, do I agree with them? 110% gyms yeah. are necessary. I think they are very necessary. You know, they're in this quote unquote essential service, but you're thinking as an essential service, does everybody in the communities around you have mm-hmm. access to it? The answer is no. Mm-hmm. I would like to see everyone getting a pass to go to the gym, I'd like to see like a rehaul really of what physical activity looks like. Cause we've seen like physical activity, anaerobic and aerobic activity is one of the best things that you can do to, for your body and your brain. Hands down, you a quick fix and a long-term fix, right? We've seen that in neuroscience. Um, we've seen that in terms of health and I'm only speaking particularly in terms of health. I don't care about how your body looks like. I believe everybody mm-hmm. has the right to move. Everybody has, everybody has a right to feel good in their body. But when you say, hey, something is an essential service, then everyone should have access to the service. Yes. Best we can do is a means-tested uh, program or a tax credit, I'm afraid. That's all we can yeah. do in this country. That's all you yeah. get. Yeah. <laughs> Boutique tax credit, that's all you get. I, yeah. I, I want to bring it back to, to AI because you know, one of the themes here, uh, obviously, is equity and accessibility. And human uh, and the limits of of, of human uh, culture and cognition. I mean, obviously, we have a huge social problem uh, with prejudice in this country. One of the sort of utopian promises of AI is that it's able to to ameliorate that or circumvent that. The pushback on crit- of critique, of course, is that these things are sometimes only as good as as the people who construct them and run them. And so we risk building that inequity and prejudice into these systems and then, you know, codifying even more so uh, that, you know, this is your field. Uh, yes. <laughs> you, you, you uh, as we were talking about earlier, come at this from a different perspective, probably than a lot of the classic entrenched folks who who have done this work. Do you believe that, that AI can ameliorate these prejudices and inequities? No, but let it, let me be clear. I love AI. I think it's very sexy. It's very exciting. I love shiny new things. But we have to be very aware of that there's a lot of challenges. You have to be pragmatic, right? You can be supportive and empower uh, innovation, but being well aware. One of the things that we don't do well in our public health sector, and I think in pretty much all the sectors in Canada, and we saw that over the last two years with regards to BLM, is that we're not really good at being introspective and being honest with 
the issues that we have in our country, right? We go through this, well, we're not the states. And I'm like, my, my dudes, we are no better. We just, it just looks different, right? Um, and so that association is really um, not uh, an appropriate one. Right. I'm just, for so the listeners at home, I'm, I'm changing batteries in the recorder. This is the, the <laughs> privilege. Of, I mean, it is a privilege to work from home, but it does come with its, when you're semi-competent like me, it does come with its limits. So please, I <laughs> Semi-competence is my favorite term. I, just, I will use that from, from I, now on. Speaking to the editors of this episode, please leave that in. The people have a right to know. <laughs> so what you're asking to, uh, to go back to that is the ethical considerations, right? So can AI ameliorate you know, things like racial bias? No, because you have to ask yourself, what is it being built on, right? It's being built on data. So mm-hmm. what the data that you receive, the data that you ingest, so there, there is a lot of bias, a lot of challenges with data. So you have bias. So this is existing biases in healthcare services and the systems. And we have bias based on socioeconomic status, on race, age, gender. Um, if you're a visible minority of a certain religious group, um, also, whether you are housed in a smaller body or a bigger body, it's the healthcare ecosystem. And that's what's really important is that it's never a single, a single line of truth. There are multiple little data points that make this quote unquote truth, right? And so this is the type of information that is encoded in the, the data that is used to build these algorithms, that are used to train these algorithms, and therefore will influence them. So in order for us to be like, hey, we're building AI for healthcare, and there's a lot of different ways, again, that you can build AI in an empowered way that does not, that that takes this into account. But if you are to do that, you should be able to have a a very um, distinct understanding of how uh, these issues encode itself into systems. So they have to be identified, they have to be removed, but they also need to be monitored, right? Because you're not going to change discrimination and racism mm-hmm. overnight, right? You're going, it's a work in progress. You just, but we, we're not ready to have that conversation because one of the worst things that you can ever tell someone is that they're being racist or discriminatory rather than actually taking a pause and being like, is my behavior is the problem? just that terminology elicits significantly more um, uproar than the action itself. And so I would, I would say that as a culture, mm. um, we're not there yet. But uh, as well, though, in terms, aside from that, there are other issues, right? So things like poor data quality. I'm not quite sure if you've ever seen a doctor's writing or a nurse's writing. That's unreadable. I love them. We need them. They're necessary for the fabric of our society. But my dudes can't write, right? Um, there's also missing data points, right? And so when I mm-hmm. worked at, um, at a different organization as a data scientist, we primarily dealt with hospitalization data. And there was a lot of vital information that was missing. That will, it, And it's fine for us as statisticians to like, you know, build a pretty graph and tell a story with it, with the missing data, um, without, without having the data points. But if you're building an algorithm, if there's vital variables that need to be ingested, that's a problem. There's also the, the issue of de-identification, right? So a pa- whether the patient's information is de-identified correctly and enough. Um, and also there's an issue of analysis as well. So 
the lack of representation in how and who analyzes the data from the get-go will influence as well the algorithm. So, you know, when we talk about bias and discrimination, I think what's re what's really important is that you have to think about it in AI in terms of a life cycle, not in terms of one particular point, but rather multiple points over time, which makes it quite labor intensive. But if you get it right, it's incredible because the the public, the sector, um, mm -hmm. the healthcare sector is one of the biggest sectors that would probably one of the most important sectors for society, but also economy um, and potentially has the best ability to take um, what is that advantage? Yes, that's the word. Take advantage, take advantage of AI technologies or AI like technologies. Mm -hmm. So that I will also include for a dear listener, I will also include the fact automation. I'm including automation in this conversation as well, yeah. and not just pure AI. Well, let's let's dig into a little bit what about you know what it looks like when the rubber hits the road with this. So, so what are we talking about then when we're talking about AI and healthcare? Are we talking about a sort of you know medical charts? Are we talking about public health information? Are we talking about hospital uh, intake? Uh, what are we talking about when we're talking about AI and healthcare? We are talking about so many things. So record keeping is 110% one of uh, the biggest ways that you can use AI because now we have computers that are able to interpret images and texts almost as accurately as humans. Um, so that would be a huge aspect of it. Diagnosis. So for example, um, you can have a lot of image analysis studies that can use deep uh, neural networks in order for them to analyze, especially in the field of dermatology. Uh, you can do object recognition of certain moles or what have you. But again, as we saw recently, is that how doctors are taught in terms of dermatology, they only look at one skin tone, right? So imagine you have the same, this is the only skin tone that you are, your, your, your AI is trained on. Um, and now you have a different skin tone that is a patient, mm -hmm. right? So it's, it has to be an iterative process. There needs to be, I'm not saying don't build the tool. I'm saying build it with the awareness that you're quite limited and you need to adjust. There always needs to be a human in connection to how the AI is, is done in terms of diagnosis. Um, you also have the, for example, um, patient engagement. So having medical chatbots, uh, we saw that, we see that a bit right now probably we're going to see it a bit more uh, and th these chatbots can answer basic questions or remind you of your next appointment or remind you of treatment uh, they're actually quite used a lot in patients in alzheimer's and parkinson's so that potentially can 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 be one of the ways drug development um, in terms of predictive models you can develop that that way um, you could also triage using AI, right? So having individuals put in symptoms or medical conditions and get a triage automatically versus having a nurse looking at it immediately set to like facilitate movement and say ER functions. Um, you also have diagnostic tools. So AI can be used to interpret laboratory results. Uh, so that can be from blood testing, to genomics, for example, hmm. um, and it can look at you know things like blood pressure um, and temperature and take take those um, variables into account when coming up with a diagnostic treatment plan, right? So there's a lot of like this field is so exciting to to see how uh, AI can can help because you know 
it can screen cancer. And, and in terms of for public health, um, AI may help improve things like disease surveillance. So you have, um, you know, detection, mitigation by like analyzing large volumes of data and multi-source data. So what that means is collecting data from multiple sources. So uh, for example, and this is just a, a hypothetical like hospitalization data, GPS data, excuse me, drug ingestion data, visits to the pharmacy data, things of that nature to give you a population view of what's happening in the population during a disease state for surveillance. So AI can, can help, again, across the life cycle within the public in the public health sector and the health sector in particular. So health professionals can use it um, and they can use it to diagnose, they can use it to provide an additional consultation uh, in terms of developing treatment plans, it can streamline care, it can have predictions abilities, um, it can have uh, diagnostic abilities. And again, in public health, we can take all that information and look at it from a population viewpoint. What about uh, privacy and surveillance? I mean, I, you know, obviously, the, the flip side of these technologies is that they produce well, the, 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 the good and the bad. It produces a lot of yeah. data. Great news. The you know bad news. It produces a lot of data. You know, you mentioned de-identification. Obviously, that's one major concern. But these yeah. obviously come with potential uh, abuses and misuses on surveillance and privacy, uh, both by the state and, and by private entities. You know, both yeah. of them are a, a space of concern. So, how do how do we manage that risk? And what's the, what's the trade off there? I think that there's a lot of. A lot of instances in where um, the privacy of individuals was overlooked in favor of innovation. Mm -hmm. um, I can't remember what year this happened, but the Royal Free NHS Foundation Trust shared personal information from 1.6 million patients uh, to Google DeepMind back in the day. And I think this is in, in the 2000s. Um, and this was to test, you know, the clinical safety of an app that will help with the diagnosis and detection of kidney injury. Uh, but basically what the, uh, the UK Information Commissioner's office, office found is that they found them in breach of the UK Data Protection Act because you collected that data for a certain purpose. Mm -hmm. And then you decided, hey, we have all this data, we can share it. But that sharing portion did not occur during the uh, ingestion portion. So I think that this is going to be one of the biggest, I don't want to say obstacles, but challenges in which um, patient data needs to be protected against. Because patient data, in essence, should be just between the doctor and patient relationship, correct? So mm -hmm. you can't be sharing it with third parties, but if the third party is building something for you and it's um, intellectual property, then do you share that information? Is it worthwhile? Um, there's also the aspect of patients having access to their own health information. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever asked to like get your own charts or look at certain things. Oftentimes there's a cost associated with looking at your own data, which I think is fascinating. Um, but in order, if you are going to use patient data, the patient should at the very least, A, be aware of it, B, also have access to that data that you're sharing. Because there are certain individuals that don't mind sharing their data. Sure. Like, for example, I'm very privileged in that I'm very able-bodied. I, you know, um, and I would be open to sharing certain types of information. And because I'm in 
quote unquote, the health field, or I've been in it before, I understand how this data works, I have a deeper understanding of whether or not what my limits and boundaries are. And mm-hmm. that's a huge issue, right? So one of the biggest other biggest issues with, um, you know, using AI in the health sector is the lack of knowledge awareness in the public, right? So what are your rights? What are um, what can be protected? What cannot be protected? Um, and the thing is, too, the protection of data and information has to, you know, sure it needs to uh, occur between you know exchanges. But mm-hmm. if you're 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 hosting all this information on the cloud or you're hosting it on a cyber network, that also needs to be protected because there could be targets um, on that and. When you're hosting information online, cyber attackers can be on servers, the diagnostic tools themselves, wearable technologies, so your your Apple watches, so to speak, and other medical devices. So there's a lot more opportunity for shenanigans um, when it comes to data because Mm -hmm. now we're using it from different fields and different um, outputs, so to speak. Yeah, and we don't exactly have a culture of of informed consent when it comes yes, to things, right? Especially in the tech one. world, right? You know, you look mm-hmm. at, I mean, this is the classic example is look at your, you know, end user agreements that we sign and, and even, yeah. you know, they might make you scroll through it before you can click accept. But of course you can scroll through it in five seconds and it's not like the, they detect that you haven't read it. You know, they just are obviously covering their butts when it comes to some sense of liability. But you know, we don't, we just don't have that culture of informed consent. And in, with AI, there's two ways to look, well, maybe more than two ways to look at informed consent. There's the way that you've just described, but also what is the responsibility of the clinician to educate the patient on AI being used in a clinical space? Right. So you mentioned previously, like, you know, the 15 minutes. Um, So what type of information are you giving this patient? Are you giving any information? Are you not giving information? If a machine is going to diagnose me or said that I don't have X, Y, Z, I have a right to know. Right. Um, but that's one of those things is that there's a there's a lack that's added burden to the to both the patients and the clinicians. Right. Mm-hmm. Clinicians are trying to like save lives. The patient is just trying to understand what's happening. Added, you know, you're going to tell them, hey, we're using this type of AI um, and this is the type of data it's going to be used. And this is how it comes to the decision that's going to come with. And this is how potentially your data will be shared. So who's going to have that conversation? That is mm-hmm. informed consent in an AI spec, in an AI, AI sphere that needs to be part of informed consent versus just, you know, um, being aware of what something is, is actually understanding the impacts and the life cycle of the AI. The A. And, and how do you do that in a medical setting in which doctors and nurses, you know, both in emergency rooms and in family practices and uh, community practices, don't have the time to do that you know i mean this is we've all been sort of uh shunted out the door from the doctor's office and notice that the doctor you know desperately wants to get on to the next patient they sort of stand in the doorway um you know these conversations ought to take a little bit of time and yet you know you're allotted a handful of minutes with with your primary care physician because they're getting poorly paid for this (laughs) for this visit and they want to get on to the next one Uh, So it strikes me that getting this right, the broader implication of that is we need to get, you know, healthcare in general right, so we free up resources and time and space. You know, it's all connected, right? Uh, 110%. Which requires a lot. Yeah. Yeah. AI is not going to fix something that's broken. Sorry, not sorry. AI, what it does, (laughs) yeah. 
AI amplifies what you have currently. Right. So if you have shit, it's amplifying shit. If yeah. sorry, I don't know if I can swear. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but if you, so you have to have a system in place in order for it to amplify what it needs to amplify. Yeah. AI is an incredible tool. I cannot overemphasize how exciting it is to be part of a a time in which this can be used. And maybe it's just exciting for me because I'm a nerd. But um, there are a lot of questions that need to be asked, and there needs to be a lot of support for the individuals who are asking them. Um, because you have to take a step back and look at, okay, like what is not working here? And you have to be very honest with yourself, right? We tend, as a culture, we tend to be quite submissive um, and we tend to pat ourselves on the back as Canadians uh, for the bare minimum that we Mm -hmm. do. And I love that for us because I too love validation. But uh, when it comes to the lives um, and the health of individuals, that can't be, that can't be it. You know, mm-hmm. you and I could advocate for ourselves. Lord knows I go, when I go to a doctor, I literally have, I wish I had it on me, but I have to transfer it to my iPad. I have a binder. I have a binder where I track my food intake, my sleep behavior, all the things that I need to discuss with my doctor that they look at it. And I will like, here's a chart of what I think is happening. I have a PhD. You shouldn't need a PhD to go to yeah. a doctor and be taken seriously. Right. Because I promise you, I've walked into doctor's offices without having this binder and the dis- I was dismissed immediately. Mm-hmm. Right. So because, again, they think that, you know, you're you're an unreliable narrative narrator of your own life. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and they kind of don't meet you halfway. So I think that's the thing with AI is that you have to be quite honest. It's an incredible opportunity for us to do really cool things, but all really cool things, but also a terrifying opportunities for us to further marginalize, marginalized communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's funny as I was at the doctor recently and, and uh, you know, f- just to check up on, you know, after two and a, some years of the pandemic, I was sort of like, okay, well, let's see, let's see where we're at, you know, <laughs> because what damage have I done? Exactly. <laughs> Uber Eats, yeah. Exactly. And I was I'm high there. risk and I, I, I couldn't go outside much for a period of time. And I wasn't doing things and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, I, I ran through concerns I had. He says, well, we don't go fishing with tests. And I said, well, you know what, maybe on this, in this case, we're going to do some fishing, you know, get, get your pole dock because we're going fishing. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah exactly. Uh, yeah. Because, uh, because I, I, I could push back and say, okay, I know, you know, what, what yeah. the last two years of and my life is, is looking. And, by and the way, I, I'm, I'm fine uh, to quote Arrested Development. That was a freebie. Uh, I, you know, I expected to, him to say to me, well, nothing I can do. <laughs> Yeah, but but you know what? What's interesting is this is your experience as a white man, Mm -hmm. right, in a medical field. And if you had gone to your doctor and you're like, you know what, I'm feeling sad, he'd be like, well, suck it up, buttercup. But if, say, you know, your partner went to the doctor and said she's feeling sad, she'll get antidepressants. This is this happens. This is not, you know, uh, an antidote of 10 years ago. This is current, right? We under... we disrespect the patriarchy really hurts males. I believe pretty much as much as yes. in certain instances, because, sure. you know, mental health, we keep preaching about mental health, but there's no action where the talk is. So a lot of these doctors are still trained in the same way where it's like, again, and this is going to be a sidebar and my apologies, look at the symptoms of depression. Okay. The symptoms of depression are all symptoms, quote unquote, that we don't identify, they're not identified in male patients, because those symptoms are quite 
female in terms mm-hmm. of their characteristics. Again, I, I do understand that I'm living in the binary, but I'm just responding to the research that we currently have or just sharing that. Um, but, you know, things like aggression, um, aggression, the, uh, you know, uh, mood changes, men feel that in depression, but it's not captured in the symptoms that we look at in the DSM-5 right? It's not captured. And this is the same thing across mental health concerns, right? You're either overrepresented in certain diagnoses or Mm underrepresented. And again, it goes back to the the understanding of how the research came to be in these fields, right? So in the field of neuroscience, for example, is that we, in the last few years, we found that, hey, a lot of our research in addiction is quite pinpointed on um, males. So it doesn't actually females don't first of all they don't look the same when they they're quote-unquote addicts they don't reach for the same things biologically they're different um in the research of pain we found that in mice models that who handles the mouse will have an impact on their their stress response so Mm. the examiner female or male will actually elicit a response beyond the experimental paradigm in this animal. So there are so many nuances that occur in these stages. Do I do I think that we need to like burn it all down and restart? No. What I do think is having a conversation and looking at everything through a sex and gender based analysis viewpoint and understanding how that works. Um, and then putting on top of it things like race, ethnicity, uh, social norms, socioeconomic status, things of that likeness. Um, and then you'll probably get a conversation that's a bit more honest. Yeah. And, and of course, this uh, you know presumes that men go to the doctor in the first place. You know, I was just having this yes, conversation. Yes, yes. <laughs> they don't. They don't go to they the doctor. Don't. No, I was having this conversation the other day, and and you know that that patriarchy and toxic masculinity and 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 um, feminism are important for men too for two reasons. The one is that they're important for for um, women and non-binary folks uh, in the in the world, obviously, but also for men who uh, for have men. to perform a toxic masculinity, who don't see doctors, who can't talk about their mental health, and are dying because of it. Right? I mean, the thing is, and, yeah, and and. The thing is, too, is that, and not to interrupt you, but this is something that I feel so strongly about. Mm-hmm. So I've been a youth worker and a community developer for over 15 years in different uh, marginalized communities all over Ottawa. And I work predominantly with boys. Okay. So this is the ages of 12 to 18. And I can't tell you how much harm the patriarchy does to young boys. I'm not mm-hmm. a man, so I don't know that experience, but I can tell you as a observer, the pain and anguish it causes physically, mentally, psychologically on young boys. Mm-hmm. And then we turn around and you're like, you can't, why aren't you better men? And I'm like, I'm sorry. If the entire system and society is set up for them to act a certain way. And when you don't act this way, you're quote unquote unmanly. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of internalized homophobia. There's a lot of internalized misogyny. And then add a layer of, you know, culture, add a layer of racism and, It's amazing that youth, I think, survive purely out of spite, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're just like, you know what, we're here. Like, because it's overwhelming. And this is something that I'm quite passionate about. Um, And, you know, when I teach, I I tell, like, when I tell my class, I tell them, like, you need to seek help before you're distressed. Um, And if you're a male, you need to push for that help. You need to establish yourself in this room and be like, hey, no, I need to talk to someone. 
full stop. That is a full sentence. You don't need to justify it. You need a full sentence and go to people that will help you because I can't tell you how many students I've had come to me and be like, Beam, I've tried to talk to health services. And oh, wow. I, yeah. like, you know, and I'm like, and I rage, right? Because it's so frustrating. In one hand, we're telling them take care of your mental health. And another hand, we're, well, you're, you're a boy. You should be fine. Excuse me. Do they not have feelings? Like, what are you talking about? If, if anyway, my apologies. I, this oh, no, is one no. of these topics that it makes my blood boil. Same. I mean, you know, we could do an entire episode again on on Absolutely. access to care. I mean, of course, you know, yes. not, you go to health services and they say, okay, well, we'll get you on a wait list and then we'll give you three sessions with a counselor and then you're on your own in the community. Good luck. Uh, yeah. you know, right? I mean, they're poorly. Anyways. Well, that might require an episode. I want to close out in the last couple of minutes by talking about the pandemic and, and you know, yeah. has the pandemic, thinking back in the last two years of it, you know, what does it tell us about the state and future uh, of healthcare in Canada and, and perhaps about, you know, how AI factors into that and whether perhaps even AI could, could play a role in, in predicting, managing future pandemics? Because, you know, we could probably use as much help as we can get, it looks like, after the last two years. Yeah, one of the issues that I have with Canadian healthcare is that it's quite intermingled with politics. And mm -hmm. we've seen that over the pandemic, right? In order for us to, in my opinion, again, am I in political science? No, I'm not. Maybe so somebody correct me. But um, in order for us to have a robust healthcare system, it needs to be separated from politics. We saw the response. I think what would, what's going to be interesting is gathering that data from every province and the mm -hmm. responses they had in every province, stratifying it and seeing how that worked in terms of output. We've stopped collecting information on COVID in Ontario um, for a few months since January, which, which I think was the biggest mistake that could have been done in terms of a, uh, a science perspective. Um, never mind in, in terms of a health perspective. Uh, and it might sound cold because I'm like, people are going to behave the way that they behave, but give me the numbers of how they're behaving. Yes. It's kind of my attitude towards it. Um, we did see during COVID point of care testing. So we saw, um, you know, the antigen tests that you can take at home. We saw people kind of becoming a bit more aware and understanding of scientific terminology. We didn't touch upon it a lot, um, but we saw what the lack of communication and knowledge mobilization occurs from both sides, right? We saw how the government has not been able to communicate effectively with its citizens. And we've seen its citizens as well not be able to wrap its head around certain concepts. So I think in terms of a long-term approach that uh, COVID has given us a lot of opportunities to be able to understand the nuances and stats Canada actually has an ongoing survey about COVID and mental health and physical health that I invite everyone to kind of take a look at just mm. Google stats can COVID uh, survey. It's an ongoing survey that they're collecting information. Um, again, is it a perfect system? No, in terms of uh, data collection, but it is what we have. So I think COVID showed us a lot of things. Um, and I think that 110% of the data can be used and will be used uh, for uh, surveillance in the future. The Public Health Agency of Canada recently um, put together a chief data office. So I don't think it's recent. I think it's been there for a while, but they have someone who's at the helm right now, a CDO who's at the helm, who is a data scientist by training. Um, mm. And they, this is something that they're very uh, near and dear to their heart. So I'm confident that's something that's probably going to be used. 
Um, but yeah, we also saw a reliance on online care, right? So I do think that it's going to be shifts. People are more comfortable sometimes having online therapy, having online mm-hmm. uh, primary care information, getting their tests test sent out. So I think there's been a shift uh, out of necessity. And I think that the public health system is now saying, hey, we can actually establish this in a lot more communities. I'd love to see that establishment of care in remote communities and Aboriginal communities that don't have that access now that, you know, but again, we didn't get to talk about the digital divide and things of that nature. I can talk about this all day, but that's kind of, um, there's a lot of aspects in which COVID will influence, I believe, uh, the health sector going forward. Well, that unfortunately brings us to time, but I mean, we've, we've, had opportunities to branch off into a dozen different episodes so someday we'll have to talk again because i yeah i want to chase down all of those those new uh, roads but you know how it is yeah. one one crisis at a time one opportunity yeah. at a time yeah i mean also um one opportunity of learning at a time as well yes. right it, it's really difficult I think there, we put a lot of emphasis on, you know, do your own research and people don't do the right research and now we're mad at them. Um, I never, I, I very rarely blame individuals on their le- lack of information. I rather blame the systems that are mm-hmm. being put in place, right? Um, when you decide that, you know, the communities that you serve don't can't understand something, it's so insulting to their intelligence. It's so insulting to your intelligence. Um, but this is an opportunity to learn and an opportunity to discuss um, I don't know if it's, you know, 110% there's uh, health crises all across Canada. And I do hope that um, understanding the nuances of how technology can impact it can improve it. That's all we can do. Right? That's a great note on which to, to end. So first of all, my, my thank you to you for joining today. This was fantastic. Thank you so much for asking me. Uh, entirely my pleasure and as always thanks to Carolyn Smith, Aaron Reynolds and Aisha Jera who make the show not just possible but far 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 better than it would be without them. Trust me they do great work when people like me can't even put fresh batteries in the recorder. <laughs> Two and a half years of the pandemic folks this is what you get and of course always thank you to the listeners. We will see you back here in two weeks. Mm-hmm.